If you find yourself on the moon, there's a pretty good chance you've got a pair of cowboy boots somewhere in your closet. Howdy! You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share their views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. And I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Today, the story of Texas has always emphasized self-reliance while living on the edge of the frontier. Whether it was the earliest European settlers staking their claims, wildcatters drilling for black gold, or telecom cowboys wrangling bits and bites, Texas has a history of pushing the envelope and leading the way. There is no better example than the crucial role that Texas, and the Houston area in particular, have played in the United States Manned Space Flight Program. But first, what's our favorite movie, filmed in Texas, but not actually set in Texas? And I can say for me, it's The Great Waldo Pepper from 1975 with Robert Redford. Mine is going to be Waiting for Guffman, which was filmed in Lockhart and other towns in Central Texas, but is actually set in fictional Blaine, Missouri. I love Waiting for Guffman. It's a fantastic movie. Parker Posey! I'm going to go with Robocop and Robocop 2. The first shot in Dallas and the second shot in Houston. Because Dallas is exactly like Detroit. I think a few years from now, they'll make a movie set in Houston, but they'll actually film it in the burned out ruins of Detroit. (laughs) Exactly. And everyone will be, hey, it's Houston. Hey, (laughs) y'all. They'll just show some cattle, some cows and some horses in there. So how did Houston become the center of everything space? We actually have to backtrack a little bit to see where the Johnson Space Center's origins come from. And those origins are in the National Aeronautics and Space Act of 1958, which was a landmark law signed by President Dwight Eisenhower, who was meant to jumpstart the United States' participation in the space race after the Soviet Union had launched Sputnik the year before. Up to this point, the U.S. military infrastructure had been in charge of the country's space program, and it was apparently incapable of moving fast enough to keep up with the Russians. Congress decided that it was necessary to create a single federal agency to fight this conceptual battle of progress with the Soviets. We had to win the space race. The Space Act created the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, to be the governing body for all civilian efforts that would develop manned spaceflight in the United States. The Space Task Group was the part of NASA in charge of managing the U.S. manned spaceflight programs. This group managed the Mercury program from Langley Research Center in Virginia, but in 1961, when President John F. Kennedy announced the national goal of putting men on the moon by the end of the 1960s, they realized that a much larger organization with many more resources than Langley could provide was going to be needed. John F. Parsons, who headed the Ames Research Center in California, led a search to find a suitable site for this new research and development center based on the criteria that it must include water transport, an all-weather airport, proximity to a major telecommunications network, availability of established industry and contractor support, an ample water supply, a mild climate allowing for year-round work, and finally, a culturally active community. Just a few little things were necessary. Houston was a candidate from the start due to its proximity to the Army's San Jacinto Ordnance Depot, which was located right off of the Houston Ship Channel. It also helped that Rice University and the University of Houston were nearby. It didn't hurt at all that Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson, who headed the National Aeronautics and Space Council, which in turn had oversight over NASA, was from Texas. The Space Task Group was soon renamed and relocated to Houston, becoming the Manned Spacecraft Center. Construction began on land donated by Rice University in April of 1962. In September of 1962, President Kennedy gave a historic speech at Rice University, which highlighted the significance of the MSC to the nation and to the Houston area. 
What was once the furthest outpost on the old frontier of the West will be the furthest outpost on the new frontier of science and space. Houston, with its manned spacecraft center, will become the heart of a large scientific and engineering community. During the next five years, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration expects to double the number of scientists and engineers in this area, to increase its outlays for salaries and expenses to $60 million a year, to invest some $200 million in plant and laboratory facilities, and to direct or contract for new space efforts over $1 billion from this center in this city. By September 1963, the MSC was officially open for business. It was intended to be the primary flight control center for all future manned space missions, beginning with the upcoming Project Gemini. The mission control center at the MSC was first operational for Gemini 4 in June 1965, and the primary control room was active through the Gemini, Apollo, and Skylab programs, as well as for space shuttle flights until 1998. The original Mission Operations Control Room was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1985 for its role in the Flight Control Room of the Apollo 11 mission, and it's since been restored to its Apollo-era condition. Following President Johnson's death in January of 1973, the MSC was officially renamed the Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center in recognition of his role as one of the key figures in passing the legislation that led to the Space Center's creation and for his long-term support and advocacy for America's space program. Today, the Johnson Space Center is still located in the suburb of Clear Lake, about 25 miles southeast of downtown Houston. There's over 100 buildings at the JSC, and they cover 1,620 acres. In addition to names, most of the buildings are numbered. Some of the more famous buildings include Building 31N, which houses the Lunar Sample Laboratory, where the bulk of all materials... That's a lot of cheese. Yeah, 842 pounds of cheese brought back from the moon are still housed. Building 32 is the home of the Space Environment Simulation Laboratory, these are two-man rated vacuum chambers used to test spacecraft. It was originally constructed in 1965 for the Apollo program, and even though it is now a National Historic Landmark, these simulated environments are still in use today and are also featured in the film Armageddon. They tried to kill Bruce Willis, I think. You can't kill him even if you take away his oxygen. He'll hold his breath and kill you. Building 2 houses the Public Affairs Office, and this is where the old uh, Johnson Space Center Visitors Center was located before they opened Space Center Houston in 1992. Most of our memories from visiting the JSC probably revolve around this building and its exhibits, the spacesuits, the murals, the lunar lander, rocket engines, etc. The Sonny Carter Training Facility, technically a separate campus from the JSC, houses the Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory. That's a giant 202 by 101 foot, 40 foot deep swimming pool filled with 6.2 million gallons of water that they use to simulate weightlessness. This is the closest that the astronauts can get on Earth to approximating the rigors of working in space. Michael Bay also tried to kill Ben Affleck in that pool. The rocket park, now indoors as part of the Space Center Houston, is home to a massive Saturn V rocket laid on its side. We mentioned that in the Battleship Texas episode. It's the real deal. It's an unused rocket from the Apollo program. It doesn't have any working engines or internal parts, but this very rocket could have gone into space if they needed it to fly. Nothing compares to standing next to that giant rocket and voyaging into the outer realms of space. To the moon and beyond! Will the influx of money and personnel really transform the greater Houston area from a sleepy, relatively young oil town into Space City, USA, the place where NASA would figure out how to send men to the moon and bring them safely back to Earth? 
For years, Houston had been regarded as part of the backwoods oil patch, whose civic identity was dominated by oil men and livestock shows. Suddenly, they'd become the center of President Kennedy's crazy moonshot, the launching point for exploring the new frontier. The city and its people would seize this opportunity to attract the nation's attention and shed its image as a kind of a village of country bumpkins in the big scheme of things. And they emerged as a vanguard for culture, engineering, and industry. Eager to impress its new spacefaring citizens, on the 4th of July, 1962, Houston put on its best dog and pony show at the Sam Houston Coliseum. You might remember this, they're the home of Houston Wrestling. It was a shindig worthy of any visiting rock star, complete with four tons of barbecue, gallons of whiskey, and complimentary LBJ-style cowboy hats for the Mercury astronauts, fresh off the plane with their families. This huge party was dramatized to great effect in the film version of The Right Stuff in 1983, although they used the Astrodome, which didn't open until 1965 instead of the Coliseum. During the years of Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs, Houston really transformed itself. This was a period of growth that saw not only the construction of the aforementioned Astrodome, and of course the subsequent renaming of the Colt 45s, the Houston's National League Baseball team, to the Astros. Woo, Astros! Yeah, woo, Astros. Not this year. But also the Jesse H. Jones Hall for the Performing Arts in 1966, World, which we've talked about before, in 1967, and the Houston, which... Intercontinental Airport, which is now the George H.W. Bush Intercontinental Airport, in 1969. The slow-moving oil town was quickly enhancing the culturally active community prescribed as one of the criteria for NASA relocating in the first place. And don't forget that the first word spoken from the surface of the moon was Houston. After the initial hoopla, the astronaut corps, along with the growing flood of engineers and contractors, got to work on the business of sending men to the moon. But they didn't just work there. They lived there with their families. They were wined and dined by many of the suburbs surrounding Houston, but the astronauts and their families mostly settled into the suburbs surrounding Clear Lake and the Manned Space Flight Center. These included Nassau Bay, El Lago, and perhaps most famously, Timber Cove, where Jim Lovell of Apollo 13 fame and four of the original Mercury 7 astronauts made their homes. While rightly regarded as heroes and celebrities by the majority of the nation, these families were assimilated and adopted by their communities as any other residents would be. This loose collection of suburbs would be nicknamed Togethersville by some of the astronauts' wives and formed a support system for those times when their husbands were pushing the envelope of human achievement. To this day, many current and former astronauts continue to make their homes in this area. There's this really good story that we found in the Houston Chronicle by writer Lisa Gray, and it's about Jim Lovell after he returned safely from the ill-fated Apollo 13 mission. And it illustrates really how deeply and completely the residents of the area embraced these space-age frontiersmen in their midst. So it goes, When at last Lovell returned to Timber Cove, the neighbors could have welcomed him home with music, cheering, and a raucous party. But the Timber Cove wives knew something different was required. The night that Lovell was due to arrive, neighbors gathered at the entrance to Timber Cove, each holding a flashlight or a torch. When the astronaut pulled up, everyone in the crowd quietly put one hand on his car, and solemnly, silently, they walked the car through the darkness to the Lovell's house. I'm glad to be back, was all Lovell said. Of course, all of this happened well before the three of us were born. Most of what we know about it, in addition to the reading, was gleaned from dramatizations such as the film version of The Right Stuff, which adapts Thomas Wolfe's masterwork chronicling the Mercury program, and other books by NASA veterans like Lovell, Alan Shepard, Deke Slayton, and flight director Gene Kranz, as well as From the Earth to the Moon, the HBO series that follows the Apollo program from many different perspectives, and that's based on Andrew Chalkin's book, A Man on the Moon, which is also very excellent. It's most excellent. 
Be excellent to each other. <laughs> Probably my favorite episode of From Earth to the Moon is the one featuring Dave Foley as Texas' own astronaut Alan Bean, the third man to walk on the moon. He was part of an all-Navy crew commanded by Gemini veteran Pete Conrad, who was masterfully played by Paul McCrane, who most people probably know him as the eternally belligerent Dr. Romano on ER. In this episode, uh, while Foley's Bean narrates the story with a kind of gobsmacked incredulity at the nature of their jobs, the show also plays up the rock star nature of their image, right down to the completely factual matching gold-on-black Corvettes that they drove. While these are, of course, dramatizations, they do serve to humanize the astronauts, as well as encapsulate the awe in which we hold their legacy. Not only did Texas serve as a launching point for the manned space program, but as a launch pad of sorts for many of the men famous for actually doing the job. Among those was Ed White. Lieutenant Colonel Edward Higgins White II was born in San Antonio. He was a West Point graduate and a test pilot and was one of nine men selected in the second group of astronauts, the New Nine. As a pilot of Gemini 4, White had the honor to be the first American to walk in space. Yes, the first American to walk in space was a Texan. Take a moment to soak in just how awesome that is. Tragically, White was killed along with Gus Grissom and Roger Chaffee as part of the pre-launch accident which occurred prior to the launch of Apollo 1, the first manned Apollo mission. Alan Bean was born in Wheeler, Texas. He was chosen in Astronaut Group 3 in 1963 and served as a backup pilot for Gemini 10, but was initially unsuccessful in landing an Apollo assignment. While he waited for assignment, he became part of the Apollo Applications Program. This was the program to develop science-based missions for the hardware and techniques built for and coming out of the Apollo program. While on that team, he became the first astronaut to dive in the neutral buoyancy simulator, the giant swimming pool at the Manned Space Flight Center, JSC. The Applications Program would eventually lead to the Skylab Program. When the original backup pilot on Apollo 9, Clifton Williams, was killed in an air crash, Bean was specifically requested as a replacement by Pete Conrad. Conrad had served as Bean's instructor at test pilot school. Subsequently, Bean became lunar module pilot for Apollo 12, commanded by his old friend Conrad, and became the fourth man to walk on the moon. In 1973, thanks to his experience with Apollo 9 and the Apollo Applications Program, Bean served as the spacecraft commander of Skylab 3. He retired from the Navy in 1975, but continued as civilian head of the Astronaut Candidate Operations and Training Group until he resigned in 1981 to pursue life as a painter. Alan Bean still lives and works in the Houston area. Now, when asked why he resigned from NASA to paint, Bean said he was fortunate enough to visit worlds and see sites no artist's eye, past or present, has ever viewed firsthand, and he hoped to express these experiences through his art. This is exactly the sort of experience that a manned space program is intended to convey. And his art is amazing. Yeah, it is. If you get the Apollo 13 Blu-ray or DVDs, you'll, you'll see a lot of his art, and it's just gorgeous. Yeah, and one of the tidbits that I read you know, concerning his paintings is that he's actually, he realized when he got back that the patches that he kept as mementos had moon dust embedded in them. So in most, if not all, of his paintings of the moon, he's actually chopped up his patches, and he includes that little bit of patch oh, that's in cool. all of his paintings. I yeah. never knew that. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so another person who went to the moon was Edgar Mitchell, and he was born in Hereford, Texas. He was chosen as part of Astronaut Group 5 in 1966. He served as a backup lunar module pilot for Apollo 10 and went to the moon as lunar module pilot with Apollo 14, became the sixth person to walk on the moon. This is the only time Mitchell would go into space, and he retired in 1972, and he currently resides in Florida. And he was played by Gary Cole in From the Earth to the Moon. Dave Scott was born at Randolph Field in San Antonio and attended school at the Texas Military Institute. 
Selected in Astronaut Group 3 in 1963, Scott began his career in spaceflight as co-pilot to Neil Armstrong on Gemini 8, where the first successful docking between two vehicles in space was achieved. In his second flight, Scott served as command module pilot for Apollo 9, the first fully configured Apollo spacecraft where the lunar module was tested for the first time in Earth orbit. For his third and final mission to space, Scott was spacecraft commander of Apollo 15, becoming the seventh man to walk on the moon and setting a record for time spent on the lunar surface at 66 hours and 54 minutes. Scott served as center director of NASA's Flight Research Center from 1975 to 1977 and later served as a technical advisor on both the film Apollo 13 and the TV series From the Earth to the Moon. He currently resides in Los Angeles. Because we can, let's just take a minute, just a few moments, to remember that of the 12 men to walk on the moon, it's a very elite group of people, 12 out of all the people on Earth in history that have walked on the moon, three of them were born in Texas. That's fully 25% of all the people that have been on the moon, they were born in Texas. If you find yourself on the moon, there's a pretty good chance you've got a pair of cowboy boots somewhere in your closet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. well, and the other thing to remember is that of the 12 men who walked on the moon, all of them lived in Texas. Yeah. In Houston. Woo, Texas. Woo, Texas. That's the one big thing we want to think about for this episode is not just that NASA was in Houston, but NASA was a part of Houston's life and a major part of growing that the Houston area. And we all have some good stories about Houston and about the NASA, about the Johnson Space Center. Well, since none of us lived in the Apollo era, you know, now would be a good time for us to kind of go around and share sort of our impression of, of the Apollo program. Yeah, you know, and what we know of the Johnson Space Center. My first introduction to the Johnson Space Center was you know, in the 80s, and the space shuttle program was already well on its way. When I went to tour there, that was way before Space Center Houston, and they put all that stuff in there. But, you know, I remember visiting Building 2 in the Visitor Center, and at the time, I'm pretty sure that was the only place you could go into a gift shop and buy astronaut ice cream. And they had the big wall with all the replica patches from the handful at that time of space shuttle missions. You know, because remember in the early 80s, they weren't, they hadn't really ramped up. So oh, they had all of the patches though, because I got a Apollo Soyuz patch, oh, yeah, you're I remember. Right. You're yeah. Right. But you know, so that's what I remember. And I remember, you know, like we mentioned earlier, walking around the buildings and there's the rocket park where they had all the rockets set up outside and they had actual rocket engines, some of which had actually been used in tests or I don't, I don't know if they had any that were actually went into space there, but they had, you know, there were working engines. They just happened to not be used at the time. You know, and it's just great to walk around that place and realize that everything that was happening in space that involved people originated from those facilities. Well, see, for me, all of these astronauts represented just almost folk heroes, but they were such realistic people because they were also Texans and they lived in Houston, so they weren't that far away. And I remember reading about, you know, all of the things that had been accomplished in the Apollo era and seeing everything that happened in the shuttle era. So that when I came to live in Houston many years later, when I was still in school, I remember getting to make a big field trip down there. And I actually went into the Sonny Carter, you know, buoyancy lab and getting to see that pool for real sitting there and and seeing all of these simulated pieces of shuttle and future space station parts that were sitting there and that there were astronauts in the pool training with everything going on. Space Station Freedom. Yeah, I remember that. I do remember that. Wow, that's a flashback. I wish they'd called it Space Space Station Texas, but yeah. 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 <laughs> well, or the SS Sam Houston would have been nice. Yeah, I think we all kind of probably went to the Space Center around the same age, you know, in our 10 to 13 year old time period. But it was in the 80s and this the shuttle missions were big. But I think it's interesting you talk about that they lived in Houston and they were part of Houston. And yeah. Well, the, and I'm just going to interject, that's 
kind of one of the themes through the whole show that we've had it from show to show is that Texas is very good about bringing in people that necessarily didn't necessarily come from here, but we accept you and we assimilate you and now you are Texan. It's the closing tag to the show. Even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. You know, the funny thing is my wife was saying, uh, you know, we were talking about this and she said that growing up in Southeast Texas, you know, it ama- it still amazes her. She said to this day that, that these, these astronauts, they did these amazing, great things, but they lived in Houston. They were close. They were just folks who lived in the town and lived in the city. And yeah. And their job just happened to be to go thousands and thousands right. of miles into right. space. Right. They, they had, they had suburban houses and they drove in the, to the office in the, in the car and, and that's what they did. But the funny thing is, is these neighborhoods also still have the character of, of being, you know, part of the NASA lifestyle. Timber Cove has a pool shaped like a mercury capsule. Um, but the interesting thing, I think another funny thing is my father-in-law was telling me when he was a teenager or a kid, he went on a Boy Scout trip down to, to Houston and they, they were doing service projects. And one of the things took them to Clear Lake and they were in this neighborhood doing the service project. And he said he didn't put it together until he was in college several years later. The names on the mailboxes were Shepard and Lovell and Armstrong and all these people. So he was like, I was, we were in the, the, the astronauts neighborhood. And, but that's the thing is that while they were part of this neighborhood, they were also protected by the neighborhood. When you read, when you read Lisa Gray's article, she also talked about that the people in the neighborhood would, when people would come looking for the astronauts houses and ask for directions, the people would give them the wrong directions to get to the wrong houses. I think an interesting thing about the astronauts, and I was thinking about this because I recently heard an interview with modern astronaut, Mike Massimo. Yeah. Love that guy. And he's amazing. And, you know, to be an astronaut, as you said, is to be a member of an elite group. But it's not just that you're blessed to be this group. You're selected to be in this group. And people work their entire lives and they put every fiber of their being and they sacrifice their personal everything to achieve this dream, to touch the outer, to touch space. And to get to do that is a very special thing. And it just reflects on the character of these individuals who've been selected because they're so humble about it and how they embrace it. And I think that's what's, it's, you know, it's the all shucks attitude, but it's like, it's all shucks, but it's putting in 120 hour weeks and it's giving up weekends and it's working harder than anybody else. And that is the Texas character and that is the Texas ideal. And I think this is a perfect time to wrap up with a quote from Alan Bean. And I found this in one of Lisa Gray's wonderful articles that she's written on the early days of Space City. Bean thinks Houston hasn't done enough to memorialize the splendid era of its Apollo past. The city needs a monument, he thinks. Something larger than downtown's Tranquility Park. Something on the city-defining scale of the St. Louis Arch. Something of a grandeur appropriate to the accomplishment it would mark. We did something here unique in human history, Bean says. We need something to say. This is where humans conceived plans to leave the Earth, and then they did it. Texas. We put men on the moon, y'all. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So please like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can follow us individually, too. I'm Mr. Java. And I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>